Elijah did it, and Elisha did it. Peter did it, and Paul did it. That's the riddle. What's the answer? Raise someone from the dead. By the way, we have a new visitor tonight. Baby Cleo was born when? Monday? Oh, Saturday. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. We're glad Cleo's with us tonight. Talking about new life. That's pretty new. They raised them, somebody from the dead. Jesus did it twice. And now he's going to do it a third time. But the third time is different than any other that has occurred before. It's different from any other resurrection that had occurred. And yet, it's not the same as his own. But it points to it. So tonight, we're going to be talking about I am the resurrection and the life in the context of the scarlet thread. <clears throat> Stop and think about the scarlet thread. One way to do it is to merge it with something we've already talked about, that it is covenants. Old covenant and new covenant. What connects the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Well, we know it's the person of whom? Jesus Christ. So one way to look at it maybe is he is the thread that is tied into the two covenants. Sort of like there's a knot on one end that ties him to it, the Old Covenant, and a knot on the other end that ties him to the New Covenant. I would say the first knot is the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, the nativity. And then his ministry that runs then to inaugurate the new covenant. And that is sealed, not with his death, but his what? His resurrection and glorification. So what's happened by the time we come to John the 11th chapter? Well, in the 9th chapter, Jesus has healed the blind man, the man that was blind from birth in Jerusalem, and told him to go wash the clay off his eyes in Siloam's fountain. And that caused big controversy. The Jews and some of the Pharisees then challenged the man. Who is this? What was his authority? And the man really can't answer. He says, all I know is he told me to do this and that I would see. And all I can tell you is that I see. That was in John 9. And near the end of that chapter, Jesus hunts him down, finds him again, and reveals himself as he has to the woman at the well as the Christ, as the Son of Man. And then we come to chapter 10. And in that, if you look at the end of chapter 9, he's talking to the Pharisees. I'm not so sure it's only the Pharisees that are there, but they are certainly among those in John 10, which is rather remarkable because Jesus then reveals two more of the statements about which Chris spoke a few moments ago, the I am statements that speak to his divinity in a veiled sort of way, not directly. He talks about being I am the door and then I am the good what? Shepherd. And then after that, very clearly, he comes into con conflict, conflict with the Jews, the Aramaic-speaking Jews. There is a division about his identity. How can a man do these sorts of things? Is he insane? Is he demon-possessed? And then some say, well, a demon-possessed, an insane person can't do the kinds of miracles, can't heal a man that was born blind from birth. And there's a big controversy about his identity. And as you come to the end of chapter 10, he comes about as close as he has so far in revealing himself as God, as the Son of God. At the Feast of, the De of Dedication, he asserted his deity basically to the Jews uh, at Solomon's porch. 
And we'll talk about that in a few moments. Uh, he basically says that he and the Father are one, and that's pretty close to it. So what's happened then at the beginning of chapter 11? Jesus has retreated. He's gone away to the place where John had first started baptizing. Well, when you go back and you look at John's gospel in chapter 1, verse 28, it said it was Bethany. But, 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 but wait a minute. In chapter 11, where are we going to go? Where do Martha and Mary and Lazarus live? They live in Bethany. But it's not the same Bethany. This is a Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. We don't know exactly where it was. Um, Origen says it was really a place called Bethabara. And when you look at the King James Version, that's why there's a little bit of confusion because the King James Version picks up on that and says that it was Bethabara. We don't know exactly where it was. We know that it is not where he was later baptizing. In John, the third chapter, it was called a, a place called Enon, which was near Salim. We think it was this place called Bethany. The oldest texts say that. It was on the other side of the Jordan, and it was about a day's journey from the Bethany where we're going today. And that fits. Because when we read the story, by the time Jesus gets there, it has been how many days since Lazarus died? Four days. Four days. Well, and then we'll see in the text, listen for it. He said, I'm waiting. And he waited how many days? Two days after he got the message to go. So one day for the news to get to him, two days for him to wait, and a day for him to get to Bethany, which is in Judah, not far from Jerusalem. We think that then it is that place on the other side of the Jordan called Bethany. Why did Jesus retreat? Because if you look in chapter 1039, it is because the Jews, the Aramaic-speaking Jews, had been pursuing him. They wanted to seize him. And the reason was because they considered him blasphemous. In chapter 10, verse 30, I made mention of this a moment ago. He said, I and the Father are what? One. You aren't going to come any closer to a statement of his deity apart from his saying, I am these things, which of course is code word for I am the New Testament uh, version, manifestation of Jehovah, or when he actually says it himself, which he just about does in John the 11th chapter. He reveals himself as the Son of God in the 11th chapter. The threat then was there. The Jews had driven him away, and they will continue to be a threat because you're going to hear in this story more than once, the Jews then come to Bethany. They are there on site in verse 8. They then have come from Jerusalem to console Mary and Martha in the loss of Lazarus. And some of them at the end of the story actually believe in Jesus. Now we're not, not going to read beyond the story, but you, you know what it is. After this event, there are many that did not believe, and they begin to conspire to kill him. Later, this resurrection of Lazarus probably creates even more popularity for Jesus. Because not long after this, we don't know exactly when it happened, but it's probably imminent just before he goes into Jerusalem. And probably Lazarus was there. Can you imagine? The people in the environs of Jerusalem have heard that he has raised this man Lazarus from Bethany, one of the suburbs. And probably many of the people were there to see Lazarus as much as they were to see Jesus and to see the result of this miracle. So then it leads us to the story, and I'm going to read the first 37 verses. So join with me in John, the 11th chapter, New American Standard Version. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha, 
It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's not what we expect. So when he heard he was sick, he rushed to get to No, he waited two more days. Verse 7, then after this, he said to his disciples, now let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that, he may awa- that I may awaken him out of his sleep. And then the disciples said to him, Lord, <laughs> if he has fallen asleep, he, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. You're not going to get any plainer than that, are you? And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. They really sense the threat, don't they? So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and some other places you'll know that that's about a sabbatic's day journey. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this when he says that? You can imagine how it struck Martha. So how did she respond? She said to him, yes, yes, Lord, I I have believed that you're the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher, the rabbi is here and is calling for you. And when she, that is Mary, heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him, met him. Then the Jews who were with her, okay, there they are again, 
and they were with her in the house, and they were consoling her. When they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they, and, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him the very same thing that Martha had said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came into the, with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, well, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man, man blind from birth, could he not have kept this man from dying? You know, he said this morning, remember we said, if you don't listen to Moses and the prophets, even if someone is raised from the dead, you're still not going to believe. They've witnessed the miracle of the blind man being uh, enabled, being able to see through Jesus' miracle. And, and yet, they always want what? One more miracle. Well, they're about to get it, folks. So, Jesus' most recent claim to deity. You know, previously, and that, this passage is partly about that. The I am statements, you know, Chris referred to those. The first of those that we find is in John, the fourth chapter, I am. He said that to whom? John 4. Who was he talking to in John 4? The woman at the well. And he reveals himself as the I am in the form of what? The Christ. He tells her, I am the Christ. And then later in John, he says, after the feeding of the 5,000, he goes across the sea. We made reference to this this morning. And then in his discourse or sermon, whatever you want to call it there, I think it's one of his sermons, he says, I am the what? It's after the feeding of the 5,000. I am the what? I am the bread of life. And then in chapter 8, after he has dealt with the situation with the adulterous woman and told those that have no sin to cast the first stone, <laughs> then he shifts gears and he tells the Pharisees, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, we said, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. He has also told the cured man, the blind man, he hasn't used the I am statement, but he's revealed himself as the son of man. So he's certainly the Messiah. You see, all of those were indirect claims to being the son of God. But now the claim is made direct. This is the first time that he does it in scripture that I can find that he directly does so. You see, it affirms the other declarations that were already made about him. Do you remember when the first of those was made in Gospel of John? Who was the first person to call him the Son of God? John the Baptist. He saw the dove descending upon him after his baptism, and he said, I'm a witness, I've seen this. The, the Spirit descended upon him and remained, and I give testimony that this is the what? The Son of God. Does John really understand all that means? Probably not, because he sends a delegation later and asks, are you really the expected one? Who is the next one? Philip's friend. He goes to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth, <laughs> that hick town, that backwater place? And then 
when Nathanael sees Jesus and Jesus recognizes him and he says, I saw you under the fig tree before I even came to you, then Nathanael looks at him and he says, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Does he understand what that means? Not fully. And, and Peter, in his confession, it's not found exactly this way in the synoptics, but in his confession, um, he does say son of God in the synoptics. In his confession in, in John the 6th, to keep it in context, in verse 69, Jesus asked the disciples, are they going to abandon him now because many others have because of his hard sayings? And Peter looks at him and he said, we don't have anywhere else to go. <laughs> After all, you are the what? You are the Holy One of God. So see, there have been references to his being the Son of God, but they don't really understand. Jesus himself has only mentioned it twice so far, and it's been only very indirectly. In chapter 3, verse 18, you can look it up. He says, condemnation comes to those who do not believe in the Son of God. But he doesn't make that claim for it being himself, necessarily. In chapter 5, verse 25, he says, at the end time, and he makes another reference to the Son of God, those who hear his voice then will be raised. But you see, he hasn't made that claim for himself. Now Jesus makes this claim directly. You see, he tells his disciples in verse number 4, and it's very obvious he's speaking about himself, so that Father can be glorified and so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. And then when Martha, a little bit later in verse number 27, what does it say? I believed, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, shifts gears and goes to Mary, Jesus does not deny that. He allows that revelation to stand. This actually refers back to something that happened in John, the fifth chapter. In the fifth chapter, Jesus is discussing, even before John 10, when he talks about being one with the Father, in John, the fifth chapter, he discusses his relationship to the Father. And he says there are two proofs, whoever it is. There are two proofs, whoever the Son of God is. There are two proofs that validate that. Proof number one in John 5 is this. Like the Father raises the dead, he also gives the Son power also to give life. That's very important for this passage, isn't it? You see, it's one of the proofs that he's the Son of God. The Son then will resurrect a new life. That's one of the proofs. The second proof is that in that act, the Father and the Son will be honored. The Son will be honored like the Father. Well, that's what's about to happen. The Father's going to be glorified, and therefore the Son of God is going to be glorified in the resurrection. It's one of the things that makes Lazarus' resurrection different, unique from the other resurrections, apart from Jesus's. Lazarus' resurrection fulfills both conditions. For in verse number 4, it says, uh, he, he, has, he has already said that the, the Son's going to be glorified. <clears throat> and look at verse number 40. We haven't gotten there yet. He says to Mary then, did I not say to you, and you don't find him saying this to Mary, and you'll see in, in the text uh, when you look at it. Did he say anything to Mary about this promise that's found in verse number 40? Well, he did, but it's not recorded. And he comes to verse number 40 and says, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? That's what is about to happen. What does the glory of God do? It glorifies the Son. And what does that do? It validates that he is the Son of God. Uh, Lazarus' resurrection also affirms that he is the very Son. Chapter 5, verse 21, Who will give life then to whom he wishes? So in John 11 here, 
The key focal point, of course, are verses 25 and 26. I am, capital I, capital A-M, New Testament manifestation of Jehovah. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That sounds redundant, but it's not. It's making another claim. If, if you see, we believe in him, we will live even if we die, be resurrected. And everyone who lives, that is, resurrected and believes, will never die. The resurrection is permanent. What's the importance of this statement in this event? It's turning point. It's turning point in the life of Jesus and in his ministry. It shifts his ministry. He's been preaching the kingdom of God, and we talked about that this morning. And a key part of the kingdom of God is the resurrection, but it shifts the focus from kingdom of God now specifically to the role of the resurrection in the kingdom of God. Previously, the subject has not been discussed. Uh, indirectly, the resurrection's been mentioned. In Luke's gospel, it's happened before this, he speaks the parable of the wedding guests. And there's an indirect reference to the resurrection. Those, uh, those that are invited to the dinner of a, a rich man, and uh, they come in, and um, if the rich man then uh, puts them in a place of honor, Jesus says that he will be repaid. Invite the poor who cannot return the favor. And then he closes by saying this, then you will be rewarded. And, and specifically, he says, in the resurrection. Okay? So there's a reference to the resurrection, but it's, it's not a theology of the resurrection. Um, in John, the fifth chapter, there's indirect rev, uh, uh, reference to it, and it states two conditions about the judgment. That is, judgment will come, and some will be resurrected to what? Life, and others will be resurrected to judgment. But the focus isn't on the resurrection itself. It is a consequence of the resurrection. This is the first place where there's a direct, focused, statement and point made about the resurrection here. It focuses the attention on the resurrection. And folks, it makes a difference. Because after that, people had been after him, but after this, they really go after him. Think about it. The Sadducees, what did they challenge him with in the temple? Uh, there's this man, there's this woman, and she's married to a man. He dies, and she marries a brother, and this happens then, six brothers. <laughs> but what's the issue? It's the resurrection. After this, he confronts the Pharisees about their legalism. After this, he makes predictions about the end times and his return. After this, he uh, preaches uh, sermons on the kingdom and heaven and parables about the judgment. And after this, he is brought before the uh, uh, Sanhedrin and the high priest, and it leads to his own trial. And you know, really, what was the accusation that was made against him? You remember? This man said that he would do what? One of the accusations. He was going to destroy the temple. Now, how does that fit in, folks? When Jesus said that in John 2, he wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about what? You destroy this temple, and I will raise it up after three days. What is the issue? The issue is the resurrection. So you see, after this point with Lazarus, time after time after time, the issue of the resurrection puts him in confrontation with all of these groups. And what has happened up to this point? The stage is set for Jesus' greatest miracle so far. 
You know, there have been five previous resurrections. I made allusion to, to uh, two past and two future when I talked about Elijah and Elisha. There were three others that were in the past. And all of these resurrections were by God's supernatural power. They, they were supernaturally done through human agents that were obedient to him. And they brought God glory. But each one of those resurrections, the five that have happened so far, have been what? Temporary. Those people later died. Now, Lazarus is going to die a little bit later, too. But his resurrection is unique. It's of a different type. Look at verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been dead there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the what? Glory of God. And we know what that means. So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. You remember what we said about miracles this morning, and we said many times. Miracles were performed partly to do what? to validate the messenger and to validate the message. That's what he's saying here. That they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now some people say that if he just said come out, that all the tombs would have been up. I, I, <laughs> I don't think so. But very specifically, he calls to Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. You see, resurrection per se had not been mentioned in any of the previous uh, occasions. Now it is. In the previous occasions, the resurrections had occurred when? Elijah goes up with a boy, lays down on him immediately. He's raised up. Elisha, very similar circumstance. What's that other incident in the Old Testament? The Moabites were coming, and a Jew had died, had thrown into a tomb, and he touched Elijah's bones. He was resurrected. They happened immediately, you see, after the death of the person, or very, very soon after. Maybe not the one with the bones lying in the tomb. But some people could explain those as resuscitations. Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain. He raised Jairus' daughter. And today, that's what many people say about Jesus' resurrection. It was just a resuscitation. <laughs> that's silly after three days. It's even sillier after four days. You see, there's a purpose for the deliberate delaying. Four days now he has been in the tomb. Shrouded in burial linen. Sealed for time and eternity. And this makes sure that God will get into certain glory because it is clearly a what? A resurrection and not a resuscitation. It also sets the stage for his resurrection that happens maybe, if this is just before the, uh, the triumphal entry, maybe just a little more than a week later. And he, of course, will be in the tomb until the third day. If God can raise Lazarus on the fourth day, he can raise his son on the third day. You see, six times he has predicted his death. He knows this is coming. When he gave the sign of Jonah, there was an illusion there. 
when he talked about rebuilding the temple in three days. The illusion was that he was going to die. He predicted this explicitly after Peter's confession of faith, and then after the transfiguration was the fourth time. A fifth time, after the curing of the demon-possessed boy, he then claims again that he's going to be put to death. And as they're on their way to Jerusalem, he then again tells his disciples this is going to happen. He is going to die. And they know this. And he has said in those predictions, apart from the ones that were just illusions, like uh, Job's sign, or sign of Jonah, that he's going to be raised again. But I think that they're focused on this idea that he's going to die. And now he gives evidence that resurrection is possible. There's a contrast to the previous resurrection events. The pre- previous accounts of the resurrection focus on the situation and the action. You know, the boy is dead, Elijah lays on him, he's raised up. Okay, It focuses on the situation and the action. Well, there's a situation and an action here, but the focus of this passage is not on the situation and the action. The focus is on what? On his authority and his identity, and that's important. He is the Son of God, as Martha testifies, and he has authority to raise the dead. It's not just an incident. It's not just a situation. It's not just an event. It's not just an occurrence not to happen again. He has the authority to do it again. So in this statement, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who is believing, another way of putting it because it's continuous, the one who is believing in me even if he were to die, yet that very same person will live. Anyone who is believing, anyone who is living and believing, that is, has been resurrected to new life, believing in me, that very person will by no means ever die. The I am is very clear. That is a statement of his deity, and we've said that time and time again. It also is a statement of the present tense. You know, the Revelation says, I am he who was, I am, I am to come. But this focuses on his present tense being. Resurrection is here now, he's saying. What did Martha say? I, I know that in the when my brother will be raised. At the resurrection, at, at the end time. He's, and Jesus is saying, listen, Martha, I am. It's here. It's present. So it's not just about his, his I was and am and will be to come. That's in there too because he is the I am. But he's saying eternal life is here now. So for us today, at this moment in time, it's not just waiting until our body is consigned to the grave Soil, dirt to dirt, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. (laughs) It's now, he's saying. I'm the resurrection, the definite article. You know this. The definite article does not have to be there in the Greek language. It's implied a lot of times. But folks, when it is there, it means something. I am the resurrection. It is comprehensive and absolute is what he's saying. It's a comprehensive term that means I am the basis for all resurrection. So how many resurrections were there in Scripture? Nine. Elijah's boy. Elisha, the boy. The one in the tomb with the Moabites. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son. Jesus raises Lazarus. Peter raises whom? She has two names. Seamstress in Joppa. Tabitha, also known as what? 
Dorcas. Paul raises the guy who fell asleep when Paul kept on going and going and going and preaching. Wake up, wake up, okay? <laughs> fell out of the loft. He didn't just bump his head. He died. Paul raised him. You know, Eight resurrections and then Jesus, of course, is nine. But those eight rec- resurrections uh, were different. They, they were accomplished through the power of God, okay, through Jesus Christ. And the same is going to happen to his own resurrection. He's saying, I have the power. It is within my power. Not just to raise others, but myself. John 10 says, if we go back and look at it, he says that the Father has given him authority, has given him authority to do two things. And what is it? I give you the authority to lay down your life. If the Father had not given the Son authority to lay down his life, he could have never died. Think about it. The Son of all glory comes down, becomes man. It is counterintuitive for God to die. Jesus could not have died if the Father had not given him permission. And he gives him authority to lay down his life, but then he also gives him authority to do what? To raise it up. So if he has authority to lay down his own life and raise up his own life, he has the authority to do the same with us because he is the resurrection. He is the basis of all resurrections. This is more about more than just the ability to resurrect. He says, he doesn't say, I am. He doesn't say, I can. I, capital A, capital C-A-N. He says what? I am. I'm literally the resurrection. That's part of his identity. I am the life. The definite article is used again here. It's not just any life. It's not living just in general, but the life. John, in his gospel prologue, he says what? In him was life. And that life was the what? The light of all people. He's the source of all life. It's more than just biological life. We know that. It's eternal life. It affirms his deity. He has the power to raise up, John 5, 21. And that therefore means he's the son of God. And in this, he gives two promises. Whoever believes will never die. Okay, so that means even though we experience, we will experience physical death. If we believe before we die, we will never truly die. If we believe before we die, we may experience mortality, this physical body, but the spirit will continue and we have eternal life, right? And then he says, if you believe in me, the one that is living who believes in me, we already have eternal life, we will never die. And what does that mean? He doesn't just say you won't die. He doesn't say you will not die. He says, and he uses a term I own here, which means forever and ever. What he's basically saying, you will certainly forever never die. It is permanent. There's a progression of events that happens after this, after Lazarus is raised. Some positive things, maybe encouraging things for the disciples. Maybe Lazarus is going along with Jesus and the rest. The crowds are pressing in upon them. The triumphal entry, Hosanna in the highest. This is the expected one. This is the new King David. They're they're exciting things. He stands in the temple, and they're amazed as he confounds the Pharisees when they give him the riddle about the taxes, when he shuts the mouths of the Sadducees and says, you don't understand the scriptures, when he chastises the Pharisees eight times and pronounces woes upon them and puts them in their place for their legalism, when he proclaims that he is going to return to his disciples in Mark the 13th chapter, and he is going to come, as we said this morning, on the clouds of glory and send his angels and gather the elect from the four corners of the earth, 
You see, these are all inspirational and exciting things for them. At the Lord's Supper, he washes their feet. At the Lord's Supper, he says, it's a cup of the New Testament in my blood, which is given to many. And then he says what? He gives them hope. He gives them hope. I will not eat or drink again. I will not eat of this bread, and I will not drink of this cup until I do it what? In my eternal home. So you see, there's hope there, but there are also negative events that happen. They're negative events. He's predicted his death. How many times? We said six. And he's doing it on the road as well. He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has a trial before the chief priest, the high priest in the Sanhedrin. He is confronted with Pilate, and then he suffers on the cross. He's scourged by the Roman guards. He has a long struggle carrying the cross to Golgotha, and Simon of Cyrene has to help him. He's mocked, and then he's crucified. He has a sense of abandonment on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Stuart Townsend notwithstanding, friends, God the Father did not turn his face away from the Son. He's watching every minute. That's my conviction. Because what happens in the very end, Psalm 2, he quotes Psalm 2, the beginning of it, when he says that, and then he affirms that he knows his Father is in control, and then he says what? Father is he speaking to the back the backhead of God? No. He says what? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. But you see, all of that has got to be very, very depressing and negative to the disciples. So let me ask this question. Two questions in closing. You know when I say that, there are ten more minutes left, okay? Right. One, I mean that. One is, did Jesus really have to die? Why did he have to die then? You know? Could he not have been translated? That happened to whom? Two people. Elijah, but who else? Enoch. He was walking with God, and then he was what? He was not. Yeah. Couldn't that have happened with Jesus? Well, it could have. Yeah. But it wasn't God's plan. A second question is, why then is the resurrection so important? Could he not raise us from the dead without his own self being raised? Hmm. Why did Jesus have to die? Four very quick things. For the forgiveness of sin, for the fulfillment of the covenant, to defeat Satan and sin. And there's a very simple explanation. Without death, there is no resurrection. You have to die to be resurrected. For the forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We know that from Hebrews. And the law was incapable of doing that. The sacrifices offered under the law were by imperfect priests in a temporary temple with animals, though that they were, quote, unblemished, they were not perfect. You see, this insufficiency is summarized in Hebrews 10. For the law, since it has only been a shadow of the things to come and not the very form of the things which offer continually year after year the sacrifices, they cannot make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, have not, they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would not longer have any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there remain, there's a remainder of sins year after year after year. You see, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So you see, the law was insufficient in every respect. But Hebrews 9 tells us that his sacrifice was sufficient. The Son of God offered the full solution. I'm not going to quote it. It's a long passage. But you can look it up. You know it. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. 
and going through 26. Secondly, for the fulfillment of the covenant. Old covenant, part of the scarlet thread. New covenant, part of the scarlet thread. It is the knot of the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that tie them together. A covenant is what? It's a promise. A covenant is a testament. A covenant is a last will and testament, isn't it? That's what it is. And the scripture tells us very clearly that a covenant, a will that is given by a person that's living, does not come into effect. You make a will for your descendants. It does not come into effect until what? Until you die. So in order for the covenant then to be activated, there had to be the death of Christ, the defeat of Satan. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that is Jesus, that through death he might render powerless, render innervated, strip out all of the power of him who had the power of death, who has the power of death, Satan. And in his death and resurrection, he took away the power of of Satan. That is the devil, that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So his, his death was necessary, and his death was necessary because of the reality. There is no resurrection without death. So let me ask the last question. I did that in five minutes. Last five minutes. Why was the resurrection necessary? Well, number one, the resurrection does what we said in, in John 5. It validates that he is the Son of God. It validates that he has this unique power. Lazarus' resurrection, as unique as it was and as pivotal event, event as it was, was not the final resurrection. It pointed to a what? Hmm. Hebrews 11 puts it this way. Some of y'all have been studying in Sunday school the last couple of weeks. From Hebrews the 11th, you've been talking about angels and heaven and all of that, and you've gone to the roll call of faith. And in the roll call of faith, it makes this point, 1135. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a what? Better resurrection. You see, Jesus' resurrection was necessary because even though there were eight others in Scripture, his was the better resurrection. More powerful, more serviceable, more useful, more excellent better for several reasons. You see, in this, Jesus did the impossible. It is possible for a living person to raise a dead person. Now, this morning, we read from Matthew, the 10th chapter, that he told his disciples to do what? Go out and, and, and heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, preach the good news, and raise the dead. And I said this morning that miracles still happen, but I doubt seriously that God is going to call upon you to go out tomorrow and raise a dead person. He calls each one of you to do that. And it's not just a metaphorical way. He calls you to go out and do what? To share the good news of Jesus Christ so that they might believe in the Christ and believing in the Christ never die spiritually. And having believed they are a living person with eternal life that will never ever die the second death. You have the power of the keys of the kingdom. You have the power, and if you share that, you unlock heaven for people. And if you withhold it, you withhold the keys of the kingdom. Yes, we have the power of life and death. Absolutely. Why? Because he raised himself from the dead. 
No, stop thinking about that. It is possible for a live person, literally, like Elijah or Elisha, to raise the dead through the power of God. Now, I don't think he's going to have you do that tomorrow. But it is impossible for a dead person to raise a dead person. Think about it. It is impossible for a dead person to raise a dead, a dead person. But that, that's exactly what happens here. I was once dead, and now I am alive, and I am alive forevermore. He who was dead raised himself and has the power to raise the dead. He is the only one that can do that. He's not just a living, mortal person who raised another person. He is not just God who raised people. Even more than that, he is the God who died and was once dead and has been raised again. And he has the power to raise himself, and through that power we can be raised. John 10 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to raise it up. You see, this commandment I received from my Father, and that resurrection is permanent, it's powerful, it's effective. And Lazarus' resurrection points to that. That's why it's a turning point in the gospel. The resurrection confirms his identity. John 5. He is raised from the dead, like the Father has the power to raise the dead, therefore he is the Son of God. It positions him as the sustainer of the universe. And that's the way Hebrews 1 opens. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the world of his power. When he has made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How did he do that? He made purification for sin, death, burial, and then he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. What had to happen? The resurrection had to happen for that to occur. He is therefore the sustainer of the universe today. Last two sub-points. He also, also gives him the power to intercede. Because he is resurrected, he is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in order to do what? To intercede. You've heard me say this many times. There's a poster that Beverly put up in the children's area. And uh, it talks about different kinds of prayer. What, five kinds of prayer? And I like the way it puts it. It doesn't say that it says supplication for our own needs. We ask for our own needs to be met. You know, Philippians 4. What it doesn't say in there is it doesn't say we intercede for others. It says we make supplication for others. I defy you to find in Scripture where it says that we are intercessors for others. What we do is we make supplication for others. Who is the intercessor? Who is it that hears our prayers and speaks our prayers at the throne of grace to the majesty of the Father? Only he. I know we do intercessory prayer, but when we do that, we're not the interceders. He is. And it enables him to raise us up. And that's obvious. 1 Corinthians 6. And now God not only raised up the Lord, but he will also raise us up through his power. Whose power is that? God who raised up the Son will raise us up through his power. It's God's power through the one that has the authority to raise us up. Now, if we have died to Christ, Paul says, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. 
For the death that he died, he died what? Once for all. Once for all sin, once for all people, once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, then consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God and Jesus Christ. This is the promise that we see forecast in the story of Lazarus in the scarlet thread. There is no resurrection without death first. And we're called to do what? To die to self. Believe in him and take up our cross and follow him so that we might be dead to self and living in him.